0: Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Discipleship Podcast, where we record conversations around Christian discipleship issues meant to inspire your own faith conversation and help you on your walk as we all journey towards Jesus together. My name is Rob Schaff, and I'm the pastor of discipling at Sardis Fellowship Baptist Church in Chilliwack, BC, Canada. On today's episode, I'm talking with David Fairbairn, the Vancouver chapter director of an organization called Reasonable Faith. This conversation was recorded on May 7th, 2021. Check out stardustfellowship.com for more information about our church. I'm happy and excited to have you on this podcast because you are a passionate guy about apologetics and stuff like that. Not only are you the, the Vancouver uh, person for Reasonable Faith, you are also a Sardis Fellowship person, and I'm thankful that you're here. And uh, so, without further ado, uh, what have you got for us today to think about?
1: Um, yeah, so I thought we'd start with something uh, nice and simple. I, well, simple is a relative term, but <laughs> I, I think we're going to start with something like a simple argument that you can you can present to a, an unbelieving friend for the resurrection.
0: Nice.
1: Um, one of my favorite things about the argument for the resurrection is nobody knows that you can argue for the resurrection. Hmm. So when I became a Christian, I thought, pretty much like I, I think most people, that the the resurrection was something you just took on faith. So you just kind of heard the message, and then you either believed or you didn't. And if God uh, drew you, then you would believe. Now, that's true. We do believe that God draws people, but I think you can make a very good historical case for the resurrection, um, the historicity of the resurrection being an actual event in history that occurred. And the best part about the argument that I love is that all the premises in the argument are things that most historians actually agree on, including secular and atheist historians. They agree and they, they, they believe these premises. Hmm. And so it's actually a really easy case to make because you just take things that they already believe and then you just reason to the conclusion that the best explanation for the evidence that we have is that Jesus was raised from the dead. Love it. A couple things I'll just kind of preface this by saying is um, there's different types of arguments. So a deductive argument has the form uh, premise one, uh, premise two, maybe more and then a conclusion which follows necessarily from the premises. So I'll give you an example. Premise one, all men are mortal. Premise two, uh, Socrates is a man. Conclusion, therefore, Socrates is mortal. And we know that because he died. But we also know that because if premise one and premise two are true, it's impossible the conclusion be false. It follows logically, necessarily. And so it's, the conclusion is guaranteed, but the premises are what's in question. So we just have to agree or not agree with the premises. And so that's, that's a very simple sort of argument that you'll hear. But that's actually, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. We're going to be doing an inductive argument. And an inductive argument is the reverse of that. So we have premises which are known to be true, or we believe to be true. And the conclusion goes over and above the premises, uh, and we reason to the best explanation. I'll give you an example of, of how we're going to be doing the, the, the logic here. So um, if you came back from uh, Save on Foods to your car and you found that there was a square dent in your door, the, the paint had, had been chipped, and you look over and there's a shopping cart nearby. And the shopping cart is about as wide as the dent on your door. And also there's, there's paint on the, the front of the shopping cart. So you know that there's a dent in the door, you know there's a shopping cart nearby, we have all this evidence, we have these these data, and the best explanation is going to be the one that fits the data and meets a number of criteria. So we're going to go, okay, let's pretend the hypothesis, the shopping cart hit your car is true. It explains the dent, it explains the location of the shopping cart and the size of the dent, and it explains the paint. So we know that that's that's got good, what we call explanatory scope. So it explains all the data. And so we really like that hypothesis. And it also has good explanatory power, because if you assume that that's true, that's the exact kind of evidence you would expect to see if a shopping cart hit your car. Now, somebody might come along and say, "Aha!" but it's also possible that an alien spacecraft hovered over the parking lot The aliens have a probe that's designed to take paint samples from your car in order to do experiments on Earth cars. They took a paint sample out of your car, and it just happens to be the same size as the shopping cart, and they scattered some paint and it ended up on your shopping cart. Well, that is a live explanatory option. We can actually say that that's possible. It's not literally impossible. Now, is that a is that a good explanation? Not really. It kind of fails on a number of uh, points. First of all, I mean realistically nobody's going to believe it but we're gonna we're gonna treat it seriously and we'll say okay does it explain all the data well it does explain the data so it has good explanatory scope explanatory power is that what we would expect to see if uh, aliens had done that well kind of but then we run into problems when we start running more criteria on it is it ad hoc yes ad hoc is latin meaning to the thing and it seems to have been uh, invented specifically for the purpose of explaining the data. That's what ad hoc is. So it's it's very ad hoc. Also, it doesn't really fit with our background knowledge of the world. We know that aliens generally have not revealed themselves. And also, they, they're not in the habit of taking paint samples from cars. And so we don't really think that that fits in with what we know to be true. And so there's a number of criteria where the alien hypothesis fails. And so based on the criteria, we would say that the shopping cart hitting your car is the most likely explanation. We're not going to prove it, but it's the most likely. So that's a bit of background about the kind of argumentation we're doing. And I think once we understand that, a lot of the confusion regarding some of these other hypotheses will sort of vanish, but we're still going to have a bit of fun and go into some of the other hypotheses.
0: So to kind of like summarize deductive versus inductive, deductive is the premises are in question, but if the premises are proven to be true, then the conclusion is absolutely like true
1: yeah, exactly,
0: and then inductive is the opposite, where we know this is true and we know this is true, and so what does that tell
1: us? you got it exactly, so well, the conclusion is doesn't necessarily logically follow, but it's reasoning to the best explanation, and we do this all the time um, I thought. I have evidence. uh, I have a message from Rob Schoff inviting me to come down and be on his podcast this morning. I look in my calendar. I see that there. And I remember talking to you. So based on those evidence points, I reasoned that I should come here at 930 this morning. And so people do that all the time. We're not using um, math games or word magic. This is how minds work. This is how reason works. So what we're going to do first, there's there's two stages to the argument. Stage number one is we're going to lay out the evidence that we have. So this is data that most historians agree on it and that we have very good evidence for. And then stage two is we're going to take all the hypotheses and we're going to show that the resurrection is the best one. And then the argument will be complete. So we're going to start with some of the evidences. There's different numbers that you'll see used uh, in debates. I'm going to keep it really simple today. I'm just going to provide three evidences. These, these three facts are going to need some sort of explanation, and we're going to go from there. So fact number one, Jesus was crucified. This is really well attested, and almost no historian doesn't believe this. Um, and I say that this is, this is a consensus view. Even the most skeptical historians agree that Jesus was, was crucified uh, under the reign of Tiberius by um, Prefector Pontius Pilate. Crucifixion was a common form of execution by the Roman authorities. It was typically used to punish the lower class, the rebellious, and uh, the treasonous. It's recorded in all four Gospels. Jesus was also a very likely candidate for somebody who would get crucified. He stood up to the Jew- Jewish authorities at the time. He claimed to forgive sins, committed what would have been blasphemous acts in their eyes. We also have a number of evidences, sources outside of the New Testament that confirm this. And before we go into these, I want to point out that somebody can't accuse us of using the Bible to prove the Bible. Sometimes people will say, well, you're just reading from the New Testament. How do we know any of that's true? Well, we don't really need to. In fact, we're assuming for the sake of the argument that all we have in the Bible is a collection of ancient books and letters. We're not assuming that it's inspired by God or that it's God's direct revelation to man, etc., or that it's infallible. We're actually, we don't have to assume any of that because we have the documents and we can we can take some, some things as factually certain. So outside of the, the New Testament, we have writings uh, from, from Tacitus, Roman historian. We have writings from Josephus uh, confirming the, the crucifixion. A playwright in the first century named Lucian who talks about the Jews executing their wise king. It's most likely Christ. We also have a Stoic philosopher named Mara Bar-Serapian uh, who speaks about um, Jesus being crucified. We also have it recorded in the Jewish Talmud I'll read to you from the Talmud. Jesus was hanged on Passover Eve. Forty days previously, the herald had cried, he is being led out for stoning because he has practiced sorcery and led Israel astray and enticed them into apostasy. Whoever has anything to say in his defense, let him come and declare it. But nothing was brought forward in his defense and he was hanged on Passover Eve. This is a Jewish extra-biblical source. So uh, we have a quote here from critical um, scholar John John Dominic Crossan. He is uh, with the Jesus Seminar, and they are extremely critical of the New Testament. They believe that only about 5% of the New Testament is reliable. And yet, John Dominic Crossan says that Jesus was crucified is as sure as anything historical can be. So this is open and shut. Jesus was crucified. So that's fact number one. So Jesus was crucified. The second fact we're going to be exploring is the empty tomb. The empty tomb is uh, recorded in, in, in the Gospels, and it's also confirmed by a number of really interesting arguments. So I'm going to sort of give you a brief overview. First of all, it's confirmed by the fact that Jesus was buried. The rise of Christianity becomes inexplicable if the tomb was occupied in which he was buried. We know that Jesus was buried because it's really well attested. Um, The location of the tomb was known to everyone in Jerusalem. It was outside the city walls. It was within a very short distance of Golgotha where he was uh, crucified. And moreover, it was a uh, tomb owned by um, the Sanhedrist Joseph of Arimathea. So what's really wonderful about the burial account is we actually have the name of the man who buried Jesus. Uh, in the world of historiography, this is unbelievably valuable, and you'd be surprised about how many things that we just assume about the ancient world that are less attested than this. So we actually have the name of the man who, who buried Jesus. It's very likely that Joseph of Arimathea was a historical person. They've used the, the suffix of Arimathea to distinguish him from other Josephs. About one in four men in um, ancient Israel was named Joseph. So we need to distinguish him. If they had invented Joseph of Arimathea, they would have probably used a more unique name. There's another re- thing that they would not have done if they had invented Joseph, uh, is they would not have made him a uh, member of the Sanhedrin. Remember that in the disciples' eyes, the Sanhedrin, they had engineered a murder of Jesus. Right. This is very important that they were the bad guys. They were the the villains, according to the disciples. There's no way they would have portrayed a Sanhedrist in a positive light. They would have picked a disciple or a hero or uh, a Christian to have buried him, but no, they picked a, a Sanhedrist. So that's a really uh, interesting little fact about that. We have a whole bunch of evidence that that Jesus was was buried in a tomb. Um, just outside uh, Jerusalem. There's also, uh, this is kind of a, a new piece of evidence that's just come out in the last couple of years. Um, so the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is, is um, in Jerusalem. You can go there today, and it's generally thought to have been the site of Jesus's burial. Uh, now, it was mostly just oral tradition up until 2017. But in 2017, some evidence was uncovered that the church had been constructed by Emperor Hadrian, Hadrian was an enemy of the Christians and had demolished the church that was on the site prior to AD 400 and replaced it with one that had similar architecture, but it was was during an expulsion of Christians from the area. This is really interesting because it tells us that there was a church there before. So we have evidence that going back to all within maybe 200 years of Jesus's crucifixion, that that was considered by everyone in the area to have been the site of Jesus' burial.
0: Interesting. But
1: there's other evidence as well. Um, in I believe it's, uh, I'm just going off the top of my head here, I believe it's in Matthew, but he says that it was within the city, uh, it was just outside the city walls. But what we know from archaeological um, uh, work in that area is that the city walls were moved in AD 40, And they were extended beyond where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre sits now. So what's really interesting about that is if this was a later invention for the location, they would have thought that the walls, it was inside the city walls. It would have said it was inside the city walls. But it doesn't say that. It says outside the city walls. So we know that that had to have been the um, narrative prior to AD 40, which puts it at within about seven years of Jesus' crucifixion. There's there's more I can go into on that. But anyways, it's really well tested that Jesus was was buried. So we're going to just call that fact number two. Um, and then we're going to go to fact number three, which is the empty tomb. The empty tomb has a number of very good evidences going for it. I would say every historian probably doesn't think that the tomb was discovered empty. I think Gary Habermas has surveyed the, the literature on it. He came to a figure of about 75% of historians worldwide believe the tomb was discovered empty, which I think is very good. It shows that a good majority of historians believe that. The empty tomb, uh, it's attested in a number of very early sources. There's a couple kind of interesting linguistic notes about the early sources that tell us that it it probably was uh, authentic. For example, it says in Mark, the tomb was discovered in the first day of the week. Now, Christian tradition quoted by Paul is that the early Christians proclaimed the resurrection on the third day. So if the empty tomb story was a late developing legend, it would have been formulated in the accepted and widespread Saturday motif. And there's also something else about the statement. Um, if you take the term the first day of the week, it's very awkward in Greek. It's, um, I'm going to try to say it, ton sabaton. It doesn't exactly uh, flow off the tongue. But... If you translate it back into Aramaic, it's very natural. So this is kind of an interesting fact about it, is that this is likely a very early source we have in Mark, and it most likely predated Mark by a good amount, and this was the oral tradition that was going around. The fact that the tomb was discovered by women, so this is, this is huge, this is probably the best evidence that the empty tomb is, is real. It was discovered by a group of his women followers. This sounds fine to our modern ears, but you have to realize that in, in this time period, women were, they were not regarded as credible witnesses. Their testimony was considered next to worthless. Women were generally second-class citizens in this time period and in this, in this culture. For example, I'm going to read you a quote from Josephus. Let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. Now, if you just took that and you, you put it into the podcast, I would probably get run out of town. <laughs> but... To uh, a first century um, Palestinian Jew, this would be very commonly accepted that you would not generally accept the testimony of a woman in court. Now, sometimes they would uh, accept it uh, in the court of law, but um, they would somehow, they they would sometimes ask for more than one woman to come. So they would be like the equivalent of maybe two or three women would be equivalent to the testimony of one man. The other thing uh, is that the idea of a woman having any part in a revelation from God would have been absolutely unthinkable. This is from some first century rabbinical texts. I'm just going to read this to you. Sooner let the words of the Lord be burnt than delivered to women. Uh, there's another one here. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a woman. Yeah. So you can see that they were just considered very um, uh, lower class, and, and they were they, their testimony was regarded as worthless. So if the disciples were to invent um, the empty tomb, they would never have picked women as the discoverers. It would have been some of the disciples. Right. So that, that for me, is, is, is probably the best evidence. Finally, um, we're going to make this fact number four. The disciples experienced appearances and sincerely believed that they had seen Jesus rise from the dead. You're going to find that this fact is one of the hardest to explain out of all of them. The other ones you can come up with, theories that are... Uh, they kind of explain, you know, maybe the someone stole the body, etc. This is really difficult to explain, and this is where you'll find a lot of the arguments that are naturalistic um, break down. First of all, um, Paul. We want to talk about Paul. He was uh, a persecutor uh, of the, the early church. He saw it as the will of God that he hunt down and imprison and sometimes execute Christians. He was extremely hostile uh, to the movement. Um, and Suddenly, uh, he was converted and became its most ardent uh, advocate. Paul reports uh, that he knew the disciples. Um, He met with the disciples shortly after his conversion. It says in uh, Galatians 1 that three years after his conversion, he went to Jerusalem and most likely met with um, Peter and James. Most likely, he talked with them for, for a long time and confirmed that what he had seen matched what they had seen. In fact, the word Paul uses when he describes it in in Galatians, it's sometimes translated in our our modern Bibles as, I think, discussed. But the word in Greek would be better translated as investigated. So he conducted an investigation when he um, went to Jerusalem. The general narrative of the early church was that Jesus had been raised and that he appeared to many. This is where we get into some really interesting history. So if you go to 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verses 3 to 5, Paul is writing to the, the Corinthians, and suddenly Paul shifts writing style. It doesn't show up in the English as much, but if you actually look at the Greek, all of a sudden his writing style completely changes. His vocabulary, his linguistic structure, everything suddenly shifts, and he says, that I deliver to you that of first importance, uh, that which I also received. And he says... Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that, and that, and that. And he gives a a quick four-line summary of the gospel. This is probably, if if I were to pick the most important section of the New Testament, of any New Testament document we have, on a purely historical basis, hands down, it's going to be 1 Corinthians 15. Hmm. 1 Corinthians 15 is regarded uh, by historians as just this this wonderful piece of really, really ancient writing, because it actually, um, the way he's written it, he says, uh, I delivered that to you, which I received as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, and that. And the word for and that in Greek is kaiheti. And kaiheti was reserved exclusively for the transmission of rabbinical teaching, so this is a Jewish uh, way of transferring something that they had learned uh, from others. And what he's probably doing here is he's probably quoting what he learned from the disciples during his visit to Jerusalem three years after his conversion. Yeah, cool. I, I believe there's a quote from, from a, a historian here. Um, this is the sort of data that historians of antiquity drool over. Um, it's extremely early. If you look at the dating of Paul's conversion and when Corinthians was written, um, we have this, this four-line formula dating to within a few years of Jesus' resurrection. Most conservative scholars will say, well, it was probably within about five years. I've seen some date it to as little as six months to two years after the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. So we know that almost immediately after Jesus was executed, um, that uh, very, very shortly after that the disciples proclaimed him as a risen Lord. Mm. And this is really important because a lot of the polemic today is that it was a late developing legend. Yeah. I really want to emphasize that nobody believes this in scholarship anymore, that it was a late developing legend. And I think a lot of people are unaware of that. This is a, an open and shut case that this was a very early, It's probably a hymn actually, mm. um, or maybe a, a, like a creed. Um, something like maybe the Apostle's Creed, but in a very simple, easy to remember thing, and they would they would probably sing it or recite it to each other. Yeah. So there's a couple evidences that that uh, that the disciples sincerely believed that Jesus had been risen from the dead. There's a few other sources we have from the Apostolic Fathers that nearly every Apostle was executed and or tortured for their belief in uh, the resurrection. None of them recanted. If you look in in Matthew, I think it's Matthew 28, he says that the soldiers at the tomb were bribed to say that uh, the disciples had stolen the body. Right. Remember that Matthew was designed to be circulated around Rome. And that was actually the big narrative of the day by the jews was that the disciples had stolen the body right um and and for me that's really interesting because he's defending what was being said back then yeah there was no narrative back then that the disciples had recanted under torture right. so imagine that one of the disciples had uh been tortured and said oh, you know it was a hoax or i didn't really see him it was a hallucination yeah
0: they that jump would have all been over
1: that yeah exactly yeah, yeah. Um, What you also see, you don't see in in Matthew. You don't see anything about showing the body to anybody uh, or exhuming the body and parading it around town and putting the whole misunderstanding to rest. So that rules out a lot of our other naturalistic hypotheses. The last point of evidence for the sincere belief by the disciples that he had been risen is, is probably James. Um, James was the brother of Jesus. James is portrayed as being skeptical in the early parts of the Gospels. In fact, one part, I I can't quote it off the top of my head, but I believe they try to lure Jesus to Capernaum, uh, where he's most likely going to be killed. And so they clearly did not believe in his um, deity. But shortly after the, the resurrection, James is portrayed as a leader in the church and an apostolic father. So we don't have quite as much evidence on, on James as we do with Paul. He, he hasn't written that many letters. But we do have enough to say that we have to explain why Jesus' own brother became a Christian. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's, that, that's, a, that's a huge point. So those are the, the sort of uh, evidences that we have. So I'm, I'm going to go back and let's just go through those again. So we have fact number one is that Jesus was crucified. Fact number two, um, that he was uh, buried. Fact number three, uh, the discovery of the empty tomb by a group of his women followers. And fact number four, the sudden and sincere belief of the disciples that he had been raised. Um, So that's the end of part one of the argument. So we've established these facts. These are, like I said, well-worn historical facts that that really not a lot of historians are going to object to. Now we're going to move into the second part of the argument, and this is my favorite, choosing the best explanation. So let's go through some of the rival hypotheses and see if they are good or bad. Um, so we'll start with the first one. And this is what the the Jews, uh, the, the Jewish were, were saying in, in, um, in Matthew, uh, that the disciples invented the appearance account and stole the body from the tomb. I want to be really clear that no historian believes this anymore. This was really popular in the 18th century, but with the rise of modern historiography, this has been completely abandoned by scholarship. So nobody would, would, would ever try to run this today in an argument, but at any rate, we're going to give it um, a chance. We have basically the disciples, they spent three years of their life following their, their leader. They had hope for the coming of the kingdom of God. Um, there was great anticipation that he would lead them to a glorious redemption and, and exodus from the, from the Roman authorities. And then he was captured Executed as a common criminal in public, in front of all of them, and buried within twenty-four hours of his capture. Yeah. This would have been devastating to the movement. The fraud theory or the 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 conspiracy hypothesis is that they were so embarrassed and that they were so despondent over, over what had happened that they they decided to get together and conspire to remove the body and then just claim that they had seen Jesus raised. This this is really uh, a stretch. You have basically peasants in, in many cases, um, they're not sophisticated religious scholars. Yeah. These are people who feared the Lord, they didn't want to lie. If we actually look at other conspiracies that have happened through history, you find out they, they fall apart really quickly. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read you a quote from one of the uh, instigators of the Watergate scandal. Uh, so this is from Charles Colson. Watergate involved a conspiracy to cover up, perpetrated by aides closest to the president the most powerful men in America who were intensely loyal to their president. Yet one of them, John Dean, testified against Nixon, in his words, to save his own skin. And he did this only two weeks after informing the president about what was really going on. (laughs) Two weeks. The whole affair. These are incredibly powerful men. The whole affair could only be held together for two weeks. And then everyone jumped ship. And the entire thing was blown apart. So with the disciples, we're not talking about powerful men. We're not
0: talking about,
1: uh, yeah, yeah, okay. No, not at all. And these are these are um, they're kind of uneducated in some cases. The moral aspect for me is is really just a a, a big problem. So a mere story uh, propagated by the disciples also um, would not have convinced Paul or, or James. Remember, Paul's an enemy of the early church. Yeah. So if the disciples are all claiming to have seen him, he's not going to convert. No. He's going to kill him. He, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the whole movement would, would have been quashed well before it ever got off the ground. So that's the fraud one theory. There's another, there's another theory that someone else stole the body and then the disciples, upon seeing the tomb, concluded that Jesus had risen. This one for me is pretty funny. Uh, you have maybe somebody, uh, like a thief, stealing the body or one of the disciples not telling the other ones that, that he had stolen it. Well, the, the big problem here is that an empty tomb would not have convinced First of all, Paul or James, but let alone anybody. I mean, think about it. If you had heard right now, if if you read on the news today, that the tomb of Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, was discovered empty, would you drop everything and become a Mormon? Nobody would. Um, a, a, A tomb is not enough to convince people to follow a religion. It's just, it's not enough. Here's my favorite. This is called the swoon theory. You'll also hear it called the apparent death. The idea is that Jesus was, um, there's, there's two versions of it. First of all, that he was taken down before dying, laid in the tomb, and he resuscitated in the tomb, um, got out and convinced everybody that he was the risen Lord. The second version adds a whole bunch of extra inform- information here that we have no evidence for. It's that he was given a potion of herbs or, or some sort of um, uh, chemical that allowed him to maybe his slow down his heart and the Roman executioners thought he was dead, and so they put him in the, the tomb, but the potion also had the capacity to, to revive him.
0: Must be nice to have this potion, yeah.
1: Right, yeah. yeah, and I guess you wonder sort of like why we don't have this potion today. Well, the Swin hypothesis explains a little bit of the evidence, but it's um, I think just to even describe it is to refute it. Right. First of all, crucifixion was a brutal, fatal execution method. These people were trained the, in, in making sure that whoever was, was crucified died. Jesus was scourged before being put on the cross. Um, most likely his back was completely flayed, it says, down to the bone. He likely lost most of his blood by the time he arrived uh, at the, the site of the crucifixion. The way crucifixion works is um, you die by asphyxiation. The nails were placed through the bone and the wrists and then also through the ankle bone of the, of the feet, sometimes both. And when you're hanging on the cross, you'd have to, um, you, you would start to choke in, with your arms in the upright position. And so you'd have to draw yourself up to get a breath, but that would put pressure on your, your, your wrists. And so you would let go, you would put weight on your, your feet again, it would be uh, going from agony to agony, you would oscillate back and forth. And eventually, you would either lose the will to, to breathe anymore and give up or you'd be exhausted and you wouldn't be able to physically lift yourself up anymore. And you would suffocate to death. It was absolutely fatal. Basically, the guards were, were 100% uh, good at their job. They, they would break legs to make sure that the, the person was really dead. There's just no way that he would have um, been on the cross, thought to be dead, put into a tomb, and then walked out again. Um, remember, he's got a nail through his ankle, uh, we have a, a bone from a first century tomb, a person named Jeho who who is a first century crucifixion victim. And the nail was wedged in his bone so deeply and so inextricably that they left it in the bone when they buried him. Mm. So imagine this half-dead person coming out of the tomb needing immediate medical attention. Um, this person would be just mutilated and then convincing the disciples that he was a risen Lord. There's, there's not a chance. Yeah. Um, and so this is... This this is another dead theory. Um, Nobody really is is trying to run this one anymore, and it's been all but abandoned. And finally, the last uh, option is the hallucination theory. Mm -hmm. The hallucination theory is the only theory right now that is being taken seriously. There's a couple problems with it right off the bat. Um, first of all, you have a, a large number of people converting to Christianity who claim to have seen seen the Lord. You have sort of a shared experience, which is very unusual for hallucinations. There's different modes of hallucination. So for example, uh, I might hear my phone. It might be an auditory hallucination, but then I go and there's nothing there. Or I might have a visual uh, hallucination. There might be a coat rack in the corner of the room at night and I might think, oh, there's a person there and I discover it's not. Then there's something like maybe a grief hallucination, which are experienced by people after uh, a loved one dies. But even in many of these hallucination cases, it's quickly discovered that it's not real, it's not veridical, and also that um, it's never shared. Um, if I came up to you and I said, Rob, you know, I, I had a dream last night that you and I were in Hawaii. How was it for you? Yeah, <laughs> you true. know, You wouldn't share in that, and you wouldn't know what I was talking about. And then the the final thing about it is that, and this for me is just fatal to the argument, is that a first century Jew would have no concept of a dying and rising Messiah after being executed. They thought that the resurrection would occur at the end of history. Um, And it was the bones that got resurrected. We know for a fact that they thought it was a bodily resurrection at the end of history. It would never occur during history especially not after being shamefully executed. If they were hallucinating, they would have pictured Jesus in the sky, seated on the right hand of the Father, gloriously giving commands and encouragement to his disciples. They would not have hallucinated him sitting and eating fish for breakfast on the shores of Lake Gal- the Sea of Galilee. And so it just doesn't have very good explanatory uh, power for the sincere belief by the disciples. That concludes the second part of the argument. We can say that all the naturalistic theories fail and that the resurrection theory is, um, it has great explanatory scope, um, great explanatory power. In the religio-historical context of of Jesus's life, we know that there was a great expectation for him uh, and that he claimed to be the son of God. He's exactly the kind of person that God would raise from the dead. And so um, the resurrection theory explains all the data points really, really well. And I think we can conclude that unless some sort of better explanation comes along, it's very unlikely it will, that the best explanation is the resurrection. And so we should believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. So that's sort of an overview of the, of the argument. You're not gonna remember, memorize all that. Anybody listening is probably not gonna memorize this. But you can just remember the four points. Jesus was crucified, Jesus was buried, his tomb was discovered later, and the disciples uh, sincerely believed that he had been raised from the dead. And the best explanation is that Jesus was raised from the dead. That's all you really have to say to your unbelieving friend. You can say, uh, well, this is the evidence, and what do you make of it? And let them explain it. And I think they'll quickly find when they try to explain away the evidence that how bad some of these naturalistic theories are. Um, And I think for me, as as a witnessing uh, tool, I think that's really powerful is to ask them, what do you think is the best explanation for all these facts? Hopefully, they agree that the, that Jesus was raised.
0: Um, I think it's pretty cool that that it's your passion to help people have these conversations, yeah. to to learn how to you know, uh, educate themselves, get some facts, understand how these arguments work. Apologetics, you know, is sort of twofold, where you're you're bolstering your own faith and understanding your own, your own doubts and your own reservations and stuff like that, learning to come to a stronger position in your own faith. And that's one part, you know, bolstering the church. And the other part is, yes, like leading people to a place where they can themselves come to believe, where they have their questions answered. That's pretty neat. And so, um and that is why you are all about reasonable faith that's why you've you got on board is to help with this and um and i think a lot of people need to have this content and, and 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 here's where i'm getting uh not just have it once right not just listen to a lecture one time or or read a book one time but really internalize it really come to understand it and be able to give a reason for the hope that you have, right? And so to that end, you with Reasonable Faith, you're hoping to start a class here in our church. Uh, or I guess uh, I guess because it'll be on Zoom, it can really be open to a lot of people, right?
1: Yeah, so I'd like to, um, I'm going to be teaching a class on the resurrection um, and uh, the church has been really um, accommodating and they're going to be uh, sort of, you guys are going to be hosting or, or letting, letting me do this. Um, so we're looking to do it in uh, June, um, on Sundays and uh, what you heard today was was probably a little more thorough than I planned but I just got carried away I guess but uh, there's actually more to know and w- I think once you find how good the evidence is and the wide variety of evidence you'll just dive right in and you'll you'll love learning about this and you can never learn about theology and, and, and Christian history too much it's, it's so rich and and fascinating, and I hope you'll join me uh, at the class because I, we're going to be going through a little bit more in depth on, on biblical scholarship, Greco-Roman uh, culture, and some of the uh, the arguments against uh, the resurrection and how we can respond to them. So if you if you want to join me for the class, I think we're doing it over four weeks. That's right. So June 2021, David Fairbairn, Reasonable Faith.
0: Uh, resurrection teaching class. You got to look look for more information on that. It's going to be killer. What is Reasonable Faith's contact info and uh, website and all that laid on me?
1: So uh, we just set up our website. It's not fully running yet, but uh, it's rfvancouver.com. And the best way to find out more is to email me. It's david.fairbairn at reasonablefaith.org. Spell Fairbairn? Uh, yeah, Fairbairn is F-A-I-R. B-A-I-R-N. Yeah, and then you can also get in touch. We have a Facebook page, um, and you can send us a message on there. We also have a chapter uh, meeting every second Saturday where we discuss apologetics. So if you have a heart to share the gospel and to um, to learn more about apologetics and um, in, impacting your, your culture, um, join us. Thanks so much
0: to David for joining me on this conversation, and thank you so much for listening. Go to SardisFellowship.com for more information about the class that David Fairbairn is leading entitled, The Resurrection of Jesus, Historical Evidence. See you next time.